Last week, we started a, a sermon series that it is called the antidote for bitterness, the antidote of bitterness. I'm going to do a brief review of what uh, we talked about last week. Think about that word, antidote. Antidote is needed when someone is perhaps bit by a snake. The snake bites the person and deposits all of its venom in their body. And then that venom just sort of travels through their blood flow. And it starts affecting the tissues, perhaps the nervous system. The person maybe cannot move anymore. It starts shutting down key organs in the body, perhaps the liver, perhaps the kidney. And so that venom goes, venom goes in and it starts inflicting tremendous pain. So much pain that some people describe it as excruciating pain. Have you heard that word? Excruciating pain. That pain comes, that description of pain comes from nothing, not other than the cross that Romans used to use to kill criminals. The same cross in which Jesus died excruciating pain, and that's what some poison from the snakes causes. Or perhaps a spider. I don't know if you have been bit by a spider, but they can also inflict terrible wounds. They can inflict, inflict terrible damage even to death. I have not been, thankfully, but many people have. And so, bitterness or in other words, a lack of forgiveness or resentment can be something that brings excruciating pain now not to the body but to the soul of a person, to their spirit. And eventually, slowly can bring them to the point of a spiritual death. So to look at a picture, at an amazing picture of what it looks like, what a bitter person looks like, I want you to open your Bibles again to Matthew 18. In the book of Matthew, in the gospel, the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament, and in that chapter 18. And we're going to see there that Jesus paints a perfect picture of what it looks to have an unforgiving spirit. And what I want, what I want you to see today, our goal is going to be to understand what is the antidote for bitterness according to the Bible. So I want to read Matthew 18 again just to refresh our memories about this amazing parable that Jesus gave. So Matthew 18, verse 23. For this reason, says Jesus, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, in other words, settle the accounts, to see who owed him money, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. There was a slave, a person that worked for him, that came and owed him 10,000 talents. That may not mean a whole lot to us, but at that time, 10,000 talents signified, meant 
a debt that was impossible to pay. It meant that this person needed to work for about 4,000 lives to be able to repay this debt. So not only to work his entire life, but to work 4,000 of those lives and work straight and work and work and work. So is it possible? It was an infinite debt. So that's what's happening. So this person comes before the king and in verse 25 it says, but since he did not have the means to repay, of course, it was unpayable. His Lord, his master, commanded him to be sold. In other words, to be sold as a slave to someone else. Along with his wife and children and all that he had so that with that money, repayment might be made. This may sound strange to us now, but at the time, this was an unacceptable thing to do. And so goes on Jesus on his, in his parable, and he says, So the slave fell to the ground. You know, and this makes you think, what would you have done if you're in front of someone and you owe him an amount of money that is impossible to pay? Last time we mentioned that today, we would probably declare bankruptcy. But at that time, that was impossible. At that time, you needed to take responsibility. And so he says that he sla- that the slave fell to the ground and he prostrated himself. In other words, he just bowed down low before his Lord. And he was saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And he says in verse 27 that the Lord of that slave felt what? Compassion. He felt compassion. Something absolutely unexpected. This is a twist. Because what was normal was for him to sell him off and then with that money use it to cover the debt. But he felt compassion. He did not do what was normally expected for him to do. And he released him. He let him go and he forgave his debt. How much did that man pay towards his debt? Nothing. Verse 28, he says, But that slave, you you would have thought here that that slave would have left happy, thankful, just determined to live a new life with the second chance that he got. But verse 28, he says, But that slave went out, and he found out that one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, So amount that was basically the work for about three months. And this person owed him all that much. And think about what he, this person originally had owed. And now someone else just owed him just a small fraction. Just a little bit of what he owed the original master. And he says that he grabbed him, he seized him, and he began to choke him. And saying, probably with with a strong, stern voice, it says, pay back what you owe. Pay it back. You owe me. You can see the anger in that sentence. So his fellow slave, what did he do? He fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. The exact same thing that the original slave had said. 
So you would expect him to remember, oh, this reminds me of something. This is familiar. That happened to me just now. Let me do the same thing that I just did. Let's see what he did. Let's see what he did. Verse 20, but, but, he was unwilling. Sounds like he didn't agree with that. He was unwilling to do it, and he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. He had a different attitude, didn't he? So other slaves saw this, and they were, man, they were, they were, in, the word is indignant. They were saying, this is not fair. Somebody has to do something with this. This man should have not had this attitude. So in verse 31, he says that when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Why? Because it was something wrong. He should have not done that. That was wrong. It was not just. So they came and they reported to their Lord all that had happened. So in verse 32, you would expect the Lord did something about it since he's in charge. So then summoning him or calling him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. You were begging me and I forgave it to you. Verse 33, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? Listen, in the same way that I had mercy on you. Verse, Jesus continues in verse 34 and says, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. The torturers. Not just to the, to the, to the prison, but to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Let me remind you, his debt was pretty much unpayable. So this meant being with, being afflicted by the torturers until the end of his life. That's what that meant. Jesus continues and finishes it up by saying, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless this time of study on your word. Father, lack of forgiveness, bitterness, resentment is a venom that is already in our bloodstream. And Father, if we don't put the antidote, if we don't use the resources that you have given us, so that we can take that antidote into our veins, into our, into our body, into our soul, we will surely die. We will surely be as this slave was, tortured infinitely forever. So Father, I pray that uh, what we study today will be uh, helpful to all of us and that, uh, that, that your Holy Spirit would be con bring conviction of sin and would also encourage our hearts to know your will for us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness, we said it was a strong emotion. A strong emotion. It is what you feel against someone when someone has sinned against you. Maybe you can take a second to think when was the last time that something did something to you that you felt was unfair. 
And when you have that thought and you hold on to it and you refuse to forget it, that becomes bitterness. That becomes poisonous, venomous. The idea is here that is when somebody sins against you, then that, just like the parable that we just saw, when somebody sins against you, that person now has a debt with you. They owe you something. And what do they owe you? They don't owe you money. They owe you uh, more than an apology. They owe you asking for forgiveness. They owe you recognizing truly what they did to you and saying, you know what? That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And I will not do that again. They owe you that. They owe you make it right. Perhaps they did take some money from you. They took something from you that belonged only to you. And they need to somehow repay that to make some sort of restitution. And that is what's the right thing to do in your heart. You say, man, this is unfair. What he or she has done to me was not right. And that is the feeling of, um, of indignation. The feeling of knowing that this was not right. And the, the question is here is, what do we do with it? What do we do with that feeling? Do we let it pester and live in our mind? Or do we do something to grab that thought and somehow control it, some, somehow deal with it? So that is the question when it comes to bitterness. And last time I suggested to you that even, even in the most basic of aspects of our life, it's full with opportunities to be tempted to be bitter. And I spoke precisely of the family, our relationships with the people that brought us into this world, our mother and our father. I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about the same thoughts, and I think that we can see the family as a training ground for the rest of our life. So when I talk about the opportunity or the temptation to be bitter in the context of our family, this is, guys, this is a, a, an opportunity. We should see it as an opportunity for us to learn and how to deal with that issue when somebody sins against you and you learn to deal with that in a biblical way for the rest of your life. Because there is something that everybody knows and it's this, that there is something wrong with this world. I remember asking a coworker of mine, I said, um, this was a conversation, he, he is not a believer, he doesn't, he doesn't accept Christianity, but I said, well, would you please tell me one thing that you wonder about God or about this world? And he said, well, what bothers me the most is why are there so much wars in this world? And that is a question that many, many, many ask themselves. Why is it that we are always, we always seem to be in war? And the answer is because we have, we have sin in our hearts and we are always in conflict, first with God and then with each other. So what I want you to see here is that while we're talking about bitterness, we're talking about how to deal with the world as it is. This will not escape anybody. Everybody needs to learn how to deal with bitterness and lack of forgiveness. Everybody has to learn to deal with the fact that someone will sin against you. Someone will sin against you. There is no question about it. Erwin, somebody's going to sin against you. I promise you. That is, that is just how it's going to happen. Eduardo, I know you're great, but somebody will sin against you. I promise you. 
And so the question is, how do we deal with it? Because when they sin against you, we want them to pay. We want them to repay. We want, we want to somehow, we want them to make it right. We want to settle that account. Just like that parable. We want them to settle that account. And when they don't, when they don't, when they don't make it right, that's when the conflict starts. That's when the conflict starts. And the way that the Bible explains or describes bitterness is not good at all. And I want you to see it for yourself. So we just saw the example that Jesus gave. I want you to, I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. If you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. And I love the sound of those papers, those pages being moved. Thank you for that. If you want to make that sound and you don't have a Bible, you come talk to me, I'll get you one. <clears throat> so in the same way that you have like this family of venomous uh, animals, like snakes, like cobras and all these animals, and they have the, the vipers, and you had uh, scorpions, and you have black widows, and all of them, they're like terrible, terrible enemies of human beings. And in the same way, bitterness hangs out with pretty venomous and poisonous friends. Look at verse 31. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice so this is a pretty dangerous gang over here that bitterness is a part of so if you're tempted to think well it's okay i can hold a grudge he deserves it anyway nobody will know it's here talked in my heart look at all that comes with it wrath anger clamor we'll have a chance to explain that but that's just like griteria like like loud shouting like fighting and raising your voice. Slander, speaking ill of the person that sinned against you to everybody except that person. All those things come together. And then I also want you to go to Colossians chapter 3. So flip two pages. There's Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. In chapter 3. And I want you to see a line of... Also of bitterness, a line of venomous or vices that are also in the human heart. And I want you to see that in verse 8. He says, but now you also put them all aside, all aside. And there's a list that is very similar. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So this is conflict, my friends. This is conflict, and that is where bitterness lives, in that conflict. And so, how does a bitterness show up? Well, the first thing that it shows up, it shows in your heart. It shows in your mind. I want you to see this. It's like a volcano, okay? A volcano builds up pressure, builds up pressure as the, as the lava inside is just pushing. It's pushing. It's trying to get out, and eventually it just explodes and just comes out. So before it explodes and comes out, first is inside and is brewing. And that's what happens in our hearts. That's why we, we call it anger. That's why this list has that idea of anger uh, or even the word of resentment 
Also, don't look for it, but in first, you can write it if you want. But in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul is talking about what true love is and what it is not. And what he's saying is not, it is keeping a record of wrongs. So when we, and we keep a record of wrongs. We keep the debt that somebody has against us and we keep it in our mind. That's how it starts. It first is in the mind and then once there's enough pressure, that volcano is just starting to shake and then eventually, boom, explodes. And explodes through our mouths. The Bible talks about bitterness one of the ways that it describes it is as harsh words. In other words, bitter words. Words that are intended to inflict pain, not healing. Are words that are intended to hurt, not to soothe a pain. Words that are intended to destroy the person, not to build them up. And so that's why this list has words like slander or abusive speech. If you have ever been in an argument, what comes out easily is precisely these things. Saying things to hurt. Using our words as a very sharp sword to thrust it in the heart of the person that you have a conflict with. And one of the things that is heavy in my heart <clears throat> for us is that I see that in the home there is a great temptation for these things to happen. That's why, since you're in Colossians 3, I want you to see this with me. If you look at verse 21 of that same chapter, Paul there says, gives an instruction to the fathers. And he says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So another translation says that, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Have you thought why that is? Have you thought ever before why the scripture, it tells that to parents? It's because in the home, it's very easy to use harsh words. It's very use, easy to use your words as a sharp sword to inflict a wound. Precisely when the order that God has given in the home is that, verse 20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. And I know that all you guys are great, great and if you're already outside of the home, and I'm sure that you were great children, but I know that you disobeyed your parents. And that's difficult to deal with for parents. And sometimes they react in the wrong way. And they react in a way that they just put too much pressure on you. And maybe they, they punish you or they discipline you harshly with anger. And that's the point. And what that gives you the opportunity Unfortunately, that gives you opportunity to be bitter against your parents and to take that bitterness with you and put it in your backpack, put it in your luggage when you leave home when you're 21, if that's the age that you leave. Now, some Hispanic kids, they stay home longer. You know, that we can talk about that, but just you take it with you and you never forget it. And that's the point. I'm, I'm, not, talking, I'm not talking something, this is not something that 
could happen. It's not an invention. It has happened to me. And that's why I'm telling you. That is absolutely... And there are words that you say that you will never be able to take back. Never. The person might even forgive you, but they will always, in the back of their mind, they remember what you said that day, that night. So with that in mind... I want to tell you, it is a serious matter because this destroys relationships. But it is also a serious matter because this matters to God. And we saw last time that Jesus does not play games when it comes to anger and using words in a destructive way. He compares it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.22. We don't have time to go there, but he compares it to, um, uh, with assassination. He compares it with killing someone in your heart. It's amazing. You can look it up later. Matthew 5.22. And then James, Jesus' half-brother in, the, in, in his letter, he says in 3.14 that anger and bitterness are things that are demonic. Demonic. So this thing is very serious. So bitterness, again, it is a poison, it, and it is already flowing through your veins. Just because you were born in sin like Adam was, this bitterness is already flowing through your veins and what we need is the anti-venom. We need the antidote. And the antidote, my friends, is forgiveness. And that's our point for today. The antidote for bitterness is forgiveness. And what we'll see next time is that the way that we take that antidote in, uh, the syringe, if you will, that, we, that, that they use to bring this anti-venom in our bodies is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But today we're going to look at what biblical forgiveness looks like so that we may fully understand um, what is it that takes, what it takes to save us from the danger of bitterness. So, first thing to say is that conflict is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. We already talked about that. And typically what happens is the way that we deal with conflict the way that we deal with somebody that sinned against us is that we do what? We lift up that rug and we sweep it under the rug. Try to hide it, don't we? Sometimes we, we just try to ignore it. When some, even if somebody says, you know what, I, I, I think I, I, I shouldn't have said that to you or I shouldn't have done that, you go, fine, fine, fine. And you, just, just, you, you try to ignore it. You try to somehow take that out. And you might even justify it saying, well, I'm just protecting my own heart. Okay, I, don't, I just want to you know, deal with it. Okay, But those are ways to deal with anger and deal with someone's sin. They're, they're, they're cheap. They're false copies. They don't measure up to what the Bible says forgiveness is. They're not an antidote. They're not an antidote. They're not an anti-venom. So the first thing to understand about what biblical forgiveness is, is that it is something absolutely radical. You can't have cheap substitutes will not save your life. As simple as that. They will not. So ignoring it, giving somebody the, the treatment, the ice treatment, I say, you know what? He just did that to me. I'm not even going to talk about him anymore. I'm not even going to talk to him anymore. I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong to him. I'm just going to kind of block it out. All that, this, this, those are cheap. And so um, the, only, the only way to do that is... Uh, through the forgiveness again and it is something radical it is all something that is this is, i want you to get this forgiveness biblical forgiveness is something that is so so radical 
something so amazing that it is impossible to do on your own strength. Again, it is something so radical, it is impossible to achieve. Impossible. So, and why? So according to this passage that we're reading in Colossians 3, why is it so impossible to achieve? It's because forgiveness is the forgiveness that I should give you when you sin against me is the same for forgiveness that God gives sinners. My goodness. So he's saying that you need to do, check this out. The Bible says that you need to deal with someone else the same thing that God does with sinners. That even though a sinner is born and is against God's will from the start, is intent on disobeying Him, on breaking God's law, on just being apathetic to who He is and His word, even though all that is, God offers pardon, a free pardon, free forgiveness, canceling that debt that you incurred, you and I incurred. He offers that. And that's, that is the call to forgive. That is what the Bible says forgiveness between fellow human beings should be. Because that is the pattern of God's forgiveness. So we're supposed to follow that pattern. That's impossible. So I want you to see with me what God's forgiveness looks like very briefly. So there are many ways that God explains forgiveness in the Bible. He explains it talking about cleansing of sin, like cleaning completely off. He talks about also uh, uh, many, many other ways of talking about forgiveness. He talks about also about him forgetting your sin. Separating as far as the west is from the east. Completely separating it. Those are some of the ways that, uh, that God describes his forgiveness in the Bible. But the one that I'm interested in today is directly connected with the parable that we saw. In particular, it's directly connected with bitterness. And it is the metaphor of God not taking your sins into account. Okay, in other words, not having it, not having a list of your sins ready for you to pay him. So let's look at that. And I want to show you one passage in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Okay, you guys still with me? Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I want you to see in Psalm 32 here, David is uh, asking God for forgiveness for... Um, but a pretty serious sin. He committed adultery with a woman and then had her husband killed in battle. And he had the power to do that because he was a king. So in something to he's asking God for forgiveness. And let's read how he expresses that in verse 1 and 2. He says, How blessed, how happy is the man whose transgression, that's a synonym for sin. That's another word for sin. So blessed is the man whose transgression is, there it is, forgiven. And then it says, and how blessed is the man whose sin is covered. That's another metaphor in the Bible for sinning. Covering the sin. Covering it. Um, and then it says in verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's a very strange word. But what that it means, and some of you may have a translation, uh, you may have the ESV translation, which says this. It says, uh, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
or counts no sin. So what that, what that is saying is saying if a person has been forgiven by God and God is not with a book just jotting down all your sins and keeping a record so that in the future, in the day of judgment, he can judge you for them. He says, if that is not true for you because he forgave you, then you're blessed. You're happy. Even right now, saying that, I just felt a weight off my shoulder. And that's what happens with forgiveness. That's what happens with the gospel. That someone did something so that your sins that you're carrying on you, the sins that, you're, that are in your conscience bearing down on you, can be let go of because God lets go of them. And all of a sudden you go, now you're free. So that is one way in which the Bible describes forgiveness, not counting the wrongs, not taking them to account. In other words, acting as though those wrongs did not exist. Hopefully that makes sense. Verse, uh, and then in the New Testament, we also see it in the, the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians by, by the Apostle Paul. And there he uses this language too. Um, it is in chapter 5, verse 19. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. I do want you to see that because I, 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 I want it to be in your mind how radical God's forgiveness is. Because that's what God demands of people to do. So here Paul is talking about, here he's talking about the gospel. And starting on verse, say, 18. And then he says this. Let's start with verse 17. This is Paul speaking. And he's speaking to a church. So he's speaking to Christians. And he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18 says, Now all these things are from God. Who did what? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the solution to conflict? Reconciliation. And that is what God did in Christ Jesus, according to this passage. And then it says, verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. The world, because the entire world was an enemy of God. The entire world, not just some people. There are no good people and bad people here. All people are Fallen short of the glory of God. All people that are born are born of Adam and they're born in sin. And because of that are against God. But God doesn't stop there. He reconciles the world to himself through Christ. And how did he do that, Paul? How does he do it? In the middle of verse 19, he says, Not counting their trespasses against them. That's that idea. He doesn't count them. That's how God forgives. He doesn't keep that list, list ready to, to wave it in front of you and say, see what you did? See what you did? See, see how you sinned against me? That's not what forgiveness is like. God doesn't mull over what you do every day if He has forgiven you. That is the type of forgiveness that God offers openly. 
not for good people, but for bad people that go to Christ begging for mercy, looking for the compassion of God, and that they put their faith in Him. To those people, God will offer, I will not count your sins against you anymore. Have you done that? Have you done that? So that is the forgiveness that God does. So I want you to go back now that we understand a little bit more about what God's forgiveness looks like and we've been reminded of it. Let's go again to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I will spend the rest of our time there with the time that we have. So in Colossians chapter 3, we see that the, the call that Paul gives is the following. He says, he says in verse 10, he says, he's talking to Christians and he says, now you have put on the new self, the new person, the new man. And that person is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So a little bit complex language, but what he is saying there is that a person that has come to Christ asking for forgiveness, that person is now made new. And now that it's made new, a new creation that we just read in Second Corinthians, that person is being renewed constantly, constantly. And they're in, renewed into what? You can think of a sculpture, a sculpture that, or perhaps a painted a painting from a long time ago that needs restoration. That is how human beings are. Initially, when the great painter, painter with capital P, when he painted a picture of you, he painted you perfectly. But because of sin, that paint, that painting got damaged, got marred, got distorted, got chipped off. And so what salvation is like is that that painter is now then slowly restoring that painting so that it looks painting so that it looks clear and beautiful again. He's restoring that the image of that painting. And the image of that painting, folks, is the image of God in us. That is how God created you and I. He put his image in us so that we can reflect him for who he is so that the world can see in a person what God is like. Okay? And we cannot do that when we are still in our sins. So that is what Paul is saying here. Look, you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, to a true understanding of God according to the image of the one who created him. Okay? And then he says in verse 12, he talks about um, so we, we move on, we remove bitterness. He's saying that we need to remove bitterness. We need to take it off. We need to take it off as you would take a dirty clothes at the end of the day. Let's say you went and you played football, like we talked about yesterday, uh, last week, I think, and you play football all day. Your clothes are going to be stinky. They're going to be soiled. They're going uh, gonna, to gonna smell bad. And the Bible says all those that bitterness needs to be taken off. Take it off. It smells horrible. Take it off. And what are you going to put on? You go take a shower, put something new on that smells good. Let's see what it is that Paul is saying that we need to put. He's saying in verse 12, he says, put on a heart of compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then in verse 13, it says, bearing with one another. Another translation says, putting up with one another. How do we do that, Paul? Well, verse 13, it says, just, Paul wants you to see today that there is a pattern that you need to follow. There is a pattern that you need to follow. And he says, read it for yourself in verse 12. In, sorry, in first, uh, verse uh, 13. He says, just as. You want to know how we forgive one another? Like how much or what, what does that look like? He says, just as. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It's exactly what the master said to the wicked servant in Jesus' parable. So it's like, I had compassion with you. How come you wouldn't have it with, this other, with your fellow slave? Same argument that Paul is doing. Same argument. And you think about this. Think about the compassion that Jesus showed to the people that were making fun of him, spitting at him, mocking him when he was on the cross. He said, he cried out loud to the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they do. Do you sense the compassion in that sentence? He knows that those people were completely, their image was completely destroyed by sin, so much that they wouldn't be able to recognize the promised king that would come to save them. And he's saying, they don't know what they do. Please forgive them. That's the compassion that Jesus showed. And then also Paul talks about patience. Arming ourselves with patience. Think about the patience that Jesus also showed when he was on the cross. Peter says, in 1 Peter 2, he says that when... That when he was being reviled, in other words, when he was being insulted, when Jesus was being insulted on the cross, he did not insult in return. He did not revile in result in return. And again, in verse 23, he says, while suffering, he uttered no threats. He didn't even open his mouth. But check it out. He says, you, if you wonder... Just think about an instance in which you were made fun of. An instance in which you were mistreated. Like you were, mistreated, like you were treated without the dignity that you think you deserve. Jesus was, and even so much more, because he had no sin. At least if you insult me, I know that at least part of your issue with me is my own self. Maybe I did do something to you. Maybe I looked at you funny one day and you just... And it's because maybe I'm not as loving as I should be. I get that. But Jesus was perfect. Absolutely perfect. And how did Jesus do that? Peter says that he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So every every threat or every burla, every um, misused word or evil word against him, insult, he would immediately say, God, Father in heaven, you will judge this. 
So I'm going to be patient with this person. Then another person walked by and he says, Oh, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, just get yourself down from that cross. Just making fun. And Jesus said again, Father, I trust you. I trust you that you will judge all things. Help me continue doing your will. And that's how Jesus was patient. That is the type of patience that Paul expects those people who are Christians. And that, that makes me think, um, you know, if, the, if there's anything that I think us as Christians are not um, a great example of to people who are not Christians, is probably that. Um, we're supposed to show the world what God's forgiveness looks like. And I think that's one of the things that we fail at. You know, think, of, think about it when you're at work and they say something to you, you just want to just fight it back immediately. Or at school. Is that, you say, oh yeah? Well then you are, mm, and just throw that in there. Whereas Jesus' attitude was like, no. I will keep entrusting myself to him who judges righteously. In other words, at this present time, I'm not the judge, Jesus would say. The Father is the judge. And there is no time whatsoever in which you and I are the judge. Zero. We never are. The judge is God. And so that is the fuel for us to have patience to say, Jesus, you will make this right. And just think about it. And this is true for me. Um, this happened at my work not long ago. I made a mistake. And there was another one of, of the persons at work who found the mistake. And he just made a big stink about it. And let everybody know that I had made a mistake. And in that moment, immediately, like that volcano that I was telling you about, I started just... Just building the, the floor, the, the, the earth was already shaking, you know, around me because I was getting so angry. But then I remember that passage that I just read. And I said, I said, Lord, this guy is condemning me right now. He's, he's basically giving off a list of everything that is wrong with me, you know, or so I thought. But he's, very, he's making sure everybody knows that I made a mistake. So he's judging me. He's condemning me. But the point is that the Bible tells me that I have already been condemned. I have been condemned already. And the beauty of the gospel is that I have been forgiven of that condemnation. Because Christ did that, what I just read. So Christ took condemnation so that I would not be condemned. And I'm here to tell you that immediately I felt a peace in my heart. There was no longer anger in me for that man. Zero. Immediately felt fine. I was able to see him next time, just talk to him, look at him in the eyes. No bitterness. But that's only what the gospel can do. Nothing else can do that. Nothing else can do that. And so that brings it to an aspect. Paul is saying here that we need to be humble. And the way to be humble in the midst of conflict is to know that you are not in the place of God. We've already said it. I'm not in the place to judge. Christ is, and He will judge. He will not judge right now when I want Him to. You know? If, if my coworker or, or, or my, one of my parents did something to me that I think was unfair, 
God will make it right in his own time, but not in my timeline. And humility says, I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the one sitting on the judge's bench. I'm not. It's not me. It's God. And that's humility. Because that removes me from the power to say, you know what? You were wrong. I don't have the power to say that anymore. It takes it away. And that is humbling. Because I think that I have the right to say, you shouldn't have done that to me. And I feel like I have the right to grab you by the neck, like, like Jesus' parable, and say, pay back what you owe. That's what we feel like. But that's only what a judge would do. Only a judge has the right to do that. We don't. So, um, so what we have to understand is that the, the way that the Bible describes forgiveness in the New Testament is when the, the word forgiveness, it means to cancel a debt, to cancel it. In other words, if someone came to you and if they owed you, say, 100 bucks and you paid him 100 bucks, then he would say, okay, forgiven. Boom. And he'll give you that. So that's what it would mean. Or if somebody was in jail and let's say that their sentence was to be in jail for three months, at the end of those three months, they would have already pay, paid their sentence and they would say, okay, forgiven. So that's what forgiveness meant at that time. And so the Bible grabs that word and he uses that idea to express forgiveness. So it is the canceling of a debt, letting go, letting free. And then that's one of the words that the Bible uses for forgiveness. There's another word that he uses, which is the one that, uh, that, that Paul uses here in Colossians. And that word, karisomai, is a word that emphasizes the fact that that canceling, listen to this well, that canceling of that debt is done without any payment. Without any payment. So you don't forgive. The way that God forgives, He doesn't forgive because you're, you have certain things good about yourself and you deserve to be forgiven. That's not the way that God forgives. He forgives because He wants to forgive. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, there are some characteristics here that I think I can work with and I can make a good chap about this. I, I can make a good person out of this. No. He forgives because he wants to. He is sovereign. He decides what he decides and he doesn't ask anybody for their opinion. He shows compassion to whom he shows compassion. And he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. So that is, my friends, what biblical forgiveness looks like. And God, just to finish, God has the duty to demand payment. Okay? Let me tell you this. God has the duty. He must demand payment for sin. Why? Would you be okay if God let a rapist go? Would you be okay if, if God let a mass murderer go free? Let's make it personal. Let's say that one of those criminals did something to you or somebody in your family. Would you be okay with God letting them go? Of course not. You would not be. So you, say, you would say, okay, God has to demand payment from that person. And the question is, what makes you different than that person in the eyes of God? I see you, and I see you. You're pretty good people. You're not going to be like a serial killer. Some of you might, and if you are, please don't get me. I don't, I don't want to die soon. Um, but the point is, from the eyes of God... We're all the same. We're all sinners. We all have fallen uh, short of His glory. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. 
if you ever committed one sin, the wages, the payment that is due to you is death, eternal death, eternity in hell. That's how God demands payment. So that's one way to do it. That's one way to, that God demands payment for a person to be condemned and eternally go to hell. That's one way. And that eternity in hell is payment for their sins. Just payment. But there's another way. The other way is for someone else to pay that debt for you. So that you can be let go of. So that you can be given a, a, a certificate of death saying you can go free. And that is exactly what God did in Christ Jesus. And I want you to flip over one page to Colossians 2. And we'll finish with this. In Colossians 2, he says, let's do it quickly. Uh, he says this, that in verse 14, that Jesus, uh, let's just start in verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions, and maybe some of you are exactly here. Maybe you are dead in your transgressions. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's Colossians 2, verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions, He, God, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And then how does He do that, Paul? In verse 14, He says, having canceled out. So this is how, Paul, how, how God did it. He canceled out the certificate of debt, which was a written at the time, a certificate of debt. It was a certificate where you acknowledged that you had a, de a debt against someone. And so he says, he canceled it out. And in that certificate of debt, it consisted of what? It consisted of decrees against us. All the times that we broke God's law are in that certificate of debt. And he says that that was canceled out. And he furthermore, he says that that certificate of debt was hostile to us. That is why at the beginning I said that there is conflict in this world. First, because we are hostile to God. And God is hostile to us because of our sin. And then we are hostile to one another. And so he's saying that this was, the certificate of debt was hostile to us. Well, no kidding. This certificate of debt was threatening us and threatens the sinner with the prospect of going to hell. So yeah, it is hostile. Yeah, it is hostile. But then he says he took it out of the way. He took it out of the way. It was between you and God between the sinner and God, and he took it away. He moved it out. That's what he did. And he says, and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. At the time when somebody was tortured in the cross, their crime was put on a table, on a wooden table, and it was nailed to the cross so that everybody would see what crime they had committed. And what happened here is that what God did on the gospel is that He took your certificate that shows all your sins and He nailed them on the cross of Christ so that it would be known that Christ was paying for those sins and not you. That is the beauty of the gospel. That someone else paid for your sin. Because that someone, God, was moved with compassion. Because he saw that your debt was impossible to pay.
and he wants to be reconciled. If you haven't been reconciled with God, I beg you to do it. The way you do that is to recognize your sin and come to Christ. Receive that mercy. Trust that he did die for your sin. Trust that your sins were written on a piece of paper, on a wooden tablet, and they are now nailed on the cross. Yours, not ours, not of the person next to me. Yours, the sins that you have committed. Trust that they have been put there. And God promises that he will give you eternal life and that you will be reconciled with him and your debt will be canceled. 